If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia. Let's get social. Connect with me at Bible Study Evangelista on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and now you can also find me on the number one Catholic app for iPhone and Android, Laudate. Let's connect. And now, let's get some Bible study in your pocket. study evangelista show bible study spinach that tastes like cake i'm sonia corbett your bible study evangelista and i hope to love and lift you today so that you can love and lift all you've been given we are in our sacraments series where are the sacraments in the bible and we have looked at them in the order in which typically in the west here in the roman church sometimes called the western rite uh Baptism, Eucharist, Confession, Confirmation, Holy Orders, Marriage, Anointing, or Last Rites. That's pretty much the order. It depends, of course, whether or not you receive the sacraments of initiation as a child or as an adult, as I did. I was kind of late coming to the whole Catholic thing, the whole sacramental thing, and never even heard the word sacrament as a non-Catholic. So today we're talking about Confirmation. And we're taking a biblical walk through the sacraments. And so today we're going to look at where confirmation is in the scriptures and how the Bible talks about it. The first half of the show, the first two segments, we're going to talk about the Old Testament roots. And then we're going to get into uh, the sacrament of confirmation in the church. So I'd like to just begin by pointing out that confirmation has its roots in the Old Testament feasts of first first fruits, pardon me, and Pentecost, sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And first fruits was a foreshadowing of Jesus first and then us. Uh, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the Bible says. But first, we really need to understand what fr- first fruits are. <laughs> the Feast of First Fruits is a harvest term. It's the produce that uh, first arises from the ground. It's the very first Uh, part of the harvest. And in Israel, that first fruit was to be dedicated to the Lord as an offering of thanksgiving. So in Leviticus 23, which outlines all of the feasts, uh, the people of Israel were commanded to bring an offering of first fruits in a festival that followed Passover and then preceded Pentecost. So the feast historically that occurred on the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, that corresponded to the day when Israel was brought out of Egypt as God's firstborn. And that's where that first fruits idea kind of comes from. So the timing then indicates part of the significance of that festival and then the meaning, obviously, of first fruits. So the offering to God commemorated Israel's separation from the nations as a first fruits of redemption. And so symbolically, it signified the consecration of Israel to God as the firstborn unto him from all the nations. And it was the beginning of the world's great harvest. So in Israel's history, that feast was supposed to remind Israel of the Exodus. And really, all of them were. 
and how that event confirmed their status as the firstborn son of God, uh, Exodus 4.22 says. So that Jesus would be called the firstfruits in 1 Corinthians 15.20, it corresponds to that idea. He is the son of God, not only in his divinity, but in his humanity, and his resurrection designates him the firstborn among many. We see that in Romans 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, and then 8, 29 and 30. So in addition to that timing, though, the symbolism of the feast of the first fruits foreshadowed the resurrection of Christ. We, we actually just mentioned that. So in Leviticus 23, the priest was supposed to lift up the offering and wave it before the Lord. And so if you imagine for us, um, depending on if you've ever lived on a farm or perhaps had a little garden and maybe you have had corn or maybe at Halloween or fall, you like to gather the corn husks and, and make a haystack. Not a haystack, but a corn stack. <laughs> if you've seen that done ever, then you sort of get the idea of what happened on that Feast of the First Fruits. The people would gather up a portion it was the first portion and it was well it varied as a according to the amount but that first portion was brought to the priest it was actually the priest kept it it was part of his we'll we'll call it an income but it was an offering to the lord that was given to the priest and the it came from the earth and it was lifted up before the lord and the seeds had already died and were in the ground and they had arisen into new life in that barley it was actually the barley harvest and then they were being presented to God as a first fruits that's really where we get the idea of tithing from this whole first fruits idea and it's important too when I mentioned tithing uh, well and in anything not just tithing as far as money goes but your time your talent all of that everything we give to God must be of our best and so the first it should come off the top when we're talking about tithes that should come off the top your time all of that that you give to God should come off the top you're the very first part of your morning the best part of your day the best part of your week your best clothing your best effort everything that is your first fruit should go to God as an offering a love offering and why because God gives you the whole thing <laughs> and he he we present those offerings back to him as a thanksgiving and that's actually um, where the roots are so they were giving it then to God or to the priest but through the priest to God because the land and all of its product was the gift of God to Israel and so in thankfulness for all of his gifts those first fruits were offered to him in their natural state um, which could be the grains or the fruits from the trees or it could also be after their preparation like a flour or dough and then the Israelites then were uh, free to use the rest for themselves but they were also commanded to leave to to not uh, harvest absolutely everything so that the people who were poor could also glean from that it says in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 22 when you reap the harvest of of your land you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest you shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger I am the Lord your God so that's another principle for us that we should not spend every single dime that we make instead we should offer that the tithe off the top to God which means the gross not the net and then reserve some for uh, charitable giving that's just a, a really good principle and in fact uh, well I, I wish I had time to get into that but you can't ever out get, give God but both of these feasts the feast of first fruits and the feast of weeks were 
said to be for a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings, which means that they have to continue. And so when our non-Catholic brothers and sisters say that that stuff all ended with Jesus, well, forever means forever. It doesn't mean once Jesus comes, it's over. It means that it must continue through him. And we know that it does because he is the first fruits of redemption and resurrection. Paul actually goes into this quite a bit. He calls Christ the first fruits of God's harvest, and it's the harvest of living souls who will be raised to life with Christ because of that atoning death that he won for us on the cross. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 23, for as by a man came death, and he means Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to him. So in Adam, everyone died in original sin, which we looked at a little bit last week. And then because of his disobedience, Adam led the whole human race into death. And then Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. So everyone who is in Christ, the new Adam, will be made alive through resurrection. And so that begins, we saw last uh, two weeks ago, in baptism. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, meaning Christ. So Jesus is the first fruits. He's both the source of life and the guarantee that a harvest of blessed souls is coming. So we could actually even say that the harvest has already begun. Then we talk about uh, Pentecost, which followed the Feast of the First Fruits. First Fruits was really just one day. The Feast of Pentecost, penta means 50 in Greek, and so it was 50 days. In the Old Testament, as that name indicates, it was the second of the great Jewish national feasts, and it was observed on the 50th day or seven weeks from the Passover feast. And so in the Old Testament, it's also often called the Feast of Weeks. Every male in Israel on that day was required to appear before the Lord at the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle first when it was portable, and then later when the uh, permanent temple was built. It was the first of two kind of, we could say, farm festivals of Israel, and it uh, signified the completion of their barley harvest, which began at the time of the waving of that first ripe sheaf on the first fruits, which preceded it. So Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks then, fell on the 50th day after that Feast of the First Fruits. And the wheat then was almost everywhere harvested at that point. And the festival was, it was like a big harvest celebration. It was a Sabbath day, which means there was no work. And the people appeared before God at the tabernacle or the temple to express their thanksgiving. And they presented two loaves of bread. They were salted. I w oh, I wish I had time to go into the salt, but the salt is a preservative. And it actually is uh, symbolic of eternity because it's a preservative. And the size of that lo loaf was uh, fixed. It had to be a tenth of an ephah, which is about three quarts and a half of the finest wheat flour of that new harvest. And in fact, the Jewish writers later were very minute in their description of the preparation of those two loaves, Josephus, and then in the Mishnah, the length was about seven hand breadths. So its width, width was four and its depth was seven. So it was a big old loaf of bread, but it was a festival day. So there was lots of rejoicing and celebration and those free will offerings were to be made to the Lord. And of course, it was also marked by this uh, spirit of uh, charity or giving toward the Levites, which were the priests, the strangers, and the orphans, and the widows, and the poor. More on that in a moment.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. the Israelites were supposed to be remembering their bondage in Egypt on that day and consecrating themselves to the Lord. And then later on in the history of um, the Israelite people, it came to signify the giving of the law at Mount Sinai or the birth of their national existence uh, in the Old Testament. And that's kind of where we get the birthday of the church or the new Pentecost in the New Testament. So that old Jewish festival, it came to... Um, garner a new significance for the Christian church because of this promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus made. And then, of course, we know the history told in Acts where when the time had fully come, then the Holy Spirit fell on those that were gathered in the upper room. So all that happened on that first Pentecostal day after the resurrection of Jesus set it apart as a Christian festival. So instead of a Jewish festival, now it was a Christian festival because it had been fulfilled in Christ who was raised from the dead as the first fruits and then it was given a new meaning. Jesus had promised the descent of the Holy Spirit and they were prayerfully waiting in the upper room for that fulfillment and the spirit came upon them it said as a rushing mighty wind and tongues of fire a power from on high and the holy spirit gave them the seven gifts of the holy spirit that's sort of a personal pentecost those were wisdom understanding counsel fortitude knowledge piety and fear of the lord that would be a good series to do they got those uh, gifts in the descent of the holy spirit and it completely changed the apostles it enabled them to become witnesses of the resurrection of christ as the fundamental fact in historic christianity and then they were sent then through that power to not only witness it in words but also in their martyrdom if necessary saint jerome does a really neat job of contrasting the old pentecost feast with the new he writes there is sinai here is zion there the trembling mountain here the trembling house there the flaming mountain here the flaming tongues there the noisy thunderings here the sounds of many tongues there the clangor of the ram's horn here the notes of the gospel trumpet so he sort of draws this analogy between the jewish and the christian pentecosts so now we have the foundation then of confirmation as a sacrament it is one of the sacraments of initiation the sacraments of initiation being baptism eucharist and confirmation together those three sacraments incorporate us fully into the life and the family of God the life of the church and the family of God and so we could say that we're actually baptized in order to be confirmed and of course if you were an adult who came into the church into full communion then you also if you had already been baptized then you also included confession in that as I did so I was baptized at nine 
And when I came into the church, I was already married and it was a sacramental marriage and the, the church recognized it as such because both of us, well, I'll get into that when we get into marriage, but I had already been baptized, so I didn't have to do that. But I did receive confession for quite a while because that was the only sacrament that I was allowed to receive. And I was I put it off for a long time coming into the church. I'd, I'd say, well, I, I could have come in at uh, Christmas. My priest was going to allow me to come into the church at Christmas, but I put it off to Easter Vigil simply because I was hoping that my husband might come in with me. Of course, that was a long shot. It took another five years. But but I received the sacrament of confession all the way up to the Easter vigil because I had already been baptized and that was the only sacrament that I could receive. And, and honestly, I'm not sure it did do me a lot of good. I was I loved being able to receive the graces from that sacrament, but I came to depend on it. And it took me a, a period of adjustment once I came into full communion and I was confirmed and I received my first Eucharist. At that point, then I was fully incorporated into the life of the church and I had to adjust a little bit to receiving the Eucharist in the way that I had previously been receiving confession, which was to sort of gather those graces. It wasn't really that I, I had all that much sin. I went every single week, but it was because I wanted to receive those graces. And of course, that's really what the Eucharist is supposed to do for us. But in any case, I digress somewhat. So where is then the sacrament of confirmation in the Bible? Well, in the New Testament, we looked at the Old Testament roots in the feasts of the first fruits and Pentecost. And in the New Testament, then it was first called the laying on of hands and that's actually that happens in quite a few places it began happening first at the descent of the holy spirit in the upper room when the holy spirit fell on the apostles there in the tongues of fire and the rushing mighty wind then they received that gift they went out to preach and to witness to christ's passion and death and resurrection and then they went on to also lay their hands on other people so that they could also receive the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, Paul laid his hands on the baptized and they received the Holy Spirit. And they knew that they received the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they spoke in tongues and they began witnessing or preaching the gospel. In Acts 8, 14 through 17, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, he put his seal on us and he gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that's really what confirmation does. It, it seals the soul and we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to just give you the scriptures here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2 we have some instruction about baptism and laying on of hands and so it was called the laying on of hands in the New Testament to begin with in Acts chapter 8 14 through 17 I'm going to read that whole thing it says now when the apostles who were in Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God they sent to them Peter and John who when they were come prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet come upon any of them, but they were only baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands upon them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. So sometimes confirmation is called chrismation, which is that oil idea. And so confirmation is 
it seals us to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's called the sacrament of the seal because that seal is indelible and it leaves a permanent mark on the soul. And it's that's similar to baptism and holy orders, actually. And those can all only be received one time. They that sealing and that chrismation the chrismation is when I'm, I'm getting way ahead but the bishop dips his finger his thumb in the oil the anointing oil and he makes the sign of the cross on our foreheads and he says be sealed with the holy spirit and that gives us the sanctifying grace to become mature christians and real witnesses real soldiers of christ we are armed to defend Christ as our king, his mother as our queen, and the church as his kingdom on earth. And so God confirms us so that we can do spiritual battle. And that's why we need those seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, fear of the Lord. So it can only be received once um, by one who is baptized and he must or he should be in a state of grace meaning not in a state of mortal sin but even if you are uh, confirmed while you're not in a state of, of grace it's still validly received it's just that the fruits of the sacrament are going to be delayed until uh, you receive penance or confession so if that uh, confirmand which is the one to be confirmed that's what they're called has reached the age of reason then also they sh should be very well catechized. I want to just mention here, when I was reading about the, um, the miracles at Fatima, I believe it was Sister Lucia who said that in the last days, the great deception that will come through the Antichrist will come in part to the church on well I shouldn't say in part it will come on the church the deception will be rampant throughout the church and it will cause a lot of apostasy but it will do so in the church especially on those who have not been confirmed and that was striking when I read it I thought wow because the seal of the Holy Spirit protects us from those deceptions and that's why it's important you know if you haven't been confirmed you really need to get that done because it is an important sacrament it roots us in the life of the church and it gives us those graces to withstand the deceptions uh, that come about in just daily life but also it gives us the strength to stand against the tide of worldliness and carnality and all the other things that really bombard us all the time in our day and time so it's very important that was a, a specific prophecy that a lot of the apostasy will occur in the church because of the people who have not been confirmed so the fruits of the sacrament are one it deepens the grace of baptism two it incorporates us into christ more fully or most fully three it strengthens the bond with the church four it gives us mission five we receive the gifts of the holy spirit and six we become witnesses even unto martyrdom, if necessary, to Christ and the church. More on the Sacrament of Confirmation when we get back. But for right now, I want to thank my newest friends of the show, Tiffany S., Samantha C., and Julie C. Thank you so much for supporting me and my ministry by being friends of the show.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spares That Taste Like Cake. Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. about the sacraments in order, first of all, of their reception, their typical reception in the Roman church. But we've also been looking at the ways in which they correspond to the natural life. And so being born and growing up, they're two different events, but they are very closely related. And so you can't grow up unless you're first born. And so confirmation then is sort of a it's the perfection of the birth in baptism, the new birth in baptism. So it's a distinct and a complete sacrament in its own right, but the purpose is to perfect in us what was begun in baptism. And so that's why we say sometimes that we are baptized in order to be confirmed. We're born spiritually in the sacrament of baptism. We become shares in the divine life. We begin to live a supernatural life. And then as we practice the virtues of faith, hope, and love, and we unite with Christ and his church in offering that worship to God, we grow in graces and virtue and goodness. But that stage really is pretty self-centered, is it not? Like children. So we tend to be preoccupied with the needs of our own souls, and we try to be good. We're not wholly self-centered, but we are mostly self-centered during that time but then we're confirmed and we receive this special grace and our faith is deepened and strengthened so it can be strong enough not just for our own needs but the needs of others and that's really what confirmation is meant to do to start having us look outward not so much inward but outward outward now and so with adolescence just like a, a child begins begins to assume more responsibilities of adulthood he sees him himself in the total family picture and even in the community at large. And so a confirmed Christian then begins to see his own responsibility to, to Christ and his neighbor. He becomes concerned, or he ought to, with the welfare of the church in the world and his neighbor. And so in a sense, then confirmation is sometimes called a spiritual growing up. And just as that mark of baptism or the character of the mark of baptism makes us sharers with Christ in that role of, of priest, the character of confirmation makes us sharers of, of with Christ in his role of prophet or teacher. And so each of us then as a Christian follows after Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And now we're not, we're lay prophets, priests, and kings, and even female, some of us. So it's not an institutional prophet, priest, and king as Christ is or our uh, bishops and priests or those who are ordained are, but we do occupy a role in the church as prophet, priest, and king. And confirmation gives us that character or that character of the mark that helps us share in those roles with Christ to the world, not just to ourselves now, but to the whole world and to the church. So we participate with him 
in the, t- the task of spreading the kingdom. We're adding new souls to the body. And, and our works then and our words should be directed not just to our own sanctif- sanctification, but then those, uh, the sanctification of those around us. So the catechism says that confirmation is the sacrament which gives the Holy Spirit in order to root us more deeply in the divine filiation, incorporate us more firmly into Christ, strengthen our bond with the church, associate us more closely with her mission, and help us bear witness to the Christian faith in words accompanied by deeds. So the confirmed Christian then goes out into the world to fulfill his vocation and he's strong in his faith and he has a love for souls that that comes from his love for Christ and he he feels a concern for the souls of his neighbors as we saw in those passages uh, in acts when the apostles in the upper room and the disciples that were all gathered there with the blessed mother when they received the holy spirit they went out And so confirmation is a complement to baptism. It completes what has been begun in baptism, but it's itself a distinct sacrament. The Samaritans had already been baptized, remember, but it was still necessary for them to receive the laying on of hands. And we also saw in that passage the way that the confirmation was given. They placed their hands or a hand of the one who was confirming upon the head of the one to be confirmed with a prayer that he received the Holy Spirit. And it's important in that passage that we see that it was the bishops or the apostles who did that confirming. Whoever it was who had baptized the Samaritans obviously didn't have the power to lay on lay hands on them. And so the two two of the apostles, Peter and John, were sent. They traveled from Jerusalem to Samaria in order to give that sacrament of confirmation to those new Christians. And so that is why in the church, the ordinary minister of confirmation is the bishop. And that shows the tie of the bishops to the apostles. They are apostles in succession of the original apostles. The extraordinary minister of confirmation is not always, but it can be the priest then the bishop gives the authority to the priest in his diocese to administer confirmation to the uh, confirmands and that is usually done because they're they're usually confirmed at easter vigil and there are so many people that the bishop can't be at every parish so he may do confirmation at the cathedral and then the priests in their own diocese which is what happens in my own diocese but it's important that we know that the bishop is the ordinary minister and the priest is an extraordinary minister so he acts by permission and under the authority of the bishop and of course whoever administers the sacrament the priest or the bishop they only do it because Jesus is acting through them it is Jesus who confirms through the Holy Spirit that's how we receive the Holy Spirit it's they they are in persona Christe or in the person of Christ and from ancient times the popes gave permission to the priests of the Greek Catholic Church to administer confirmation and in the Greek Catholic Church the priest who baptizes the child also confirms them at the same time it's just right immediately afterward and then they of course receive the Eucharist so there are sacraments of initiation are all at one time in the Latin church, as we know, then confirmation is not usually given until after the child is, has made his first Holy Communion. And that used to be around seven, and in some places it still is, but mostly it's in the eighth grade at this point. Confirmation takes place within a Mass, typically, in order to show clearly the connection between the sacrament and the whole of Christian initiation, which is, it all occurs in the church. 
and the newly confirmed then participate in the Eucharist and that completes their Christian initiation it could be in a different order but either way it doesn't matter they're all the sacraments of an initiation those who will be confirmed are accompanied by a sponsor which is hopefully usually a godparent and then they stand before the bishop who questions them and they offer their profession of faith and then he says my dear friends in baptism god our father gave the new birth of eternal life to his chosen sons and daughters let us pray to our father that he will pour out the holy spirit to strengthen his sons and daughters with his gifts and anoint them to be more like christ the son of god and then he prays silently and he stands facing those who are to be confirmed and then with his hands extended he prays the holy spirit upon them he says all powerful god father of our lord jesus christ by water and the holy spirit you freed your sons and daughters from sin and gave them new life send your holy spirit upon them to be their helper and guide give them the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of right judgment and courage the spirit of knowledge and reverence Fill them with the spirit of wonder and awe at your presence. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then the essential part of the ceremony, each candidate is anointed with oil or chrism on the forehead with the laying on of the hand. Just as in the beginning, he places his hand on the head of the one to be confirmed and he traces with his thumb the sign of the cross or the seal right on the person's forehead after he has dipped his thumb in the holy oil. And then he says he addresses the candidates by name, which is a new name. I'll get to that in a moment. And he says, be sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then the person who has just been confirmed says, amen. So as Abram became Abraham and Jacob became Israel and Simon became Peter and Saul became Paul throughout the Old Testament, well, and the new Peter and Paul, the confirmant takes on a new name. He receives a saint name when he is sealed with the Holy Spirit and and the bishop uses that name or the priest, whoever's doing the confirmation. And that's the traditional practice of the church. It doesn't make you less confirmed and it's not less valid, but it is traditional and that is at that point we receive that uh, saint as a patron and so that saint sort of accompanies us through the rest of our spiritual life and typically we say that the saints choose us we don't choose them and so it's neat that uh, to kind of think of that and know that the saint has probably had his or her eye on you the whole time (laughs) and that's especially cool for me you know coming into the church and having read nothing but Carmelite writings I had not made the connection at all even after I received John of the Cross as my patron saint I hadn't made the connection that most of my formation occurred under the Carmelite teaching until I was looking for a third order to sort of be involved in and that's a whole different story but man it was very very cool to realize that the Carmelites had really chosen me and John of the Cross had chosen me way before I ever even realized that they were doing so it's a beautiful thing the taking of that saint name because as I said they accompany us they're they're a little bit like our guardian angels really they help us the saints uh, in those ways and they know how to pray for us better than even we do the chrism that is used for confirmation is one of the three kinds of holy oil that a bishop blesses every year on the holy chrism mass it's on holy thursday And, of course, the other two kinds of oil are the oil of catechumens and the oil of the sick, which we'll talk about in that last sacrament. More on confirmation when we get back.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. even in the Old Testament, and oil is so symbolic of the Holy Spirit in so many ways. I wish I had the time to kind of go through that, but that oil shows up everywhere throughout the Old Testament, especially in the tabernacle. One of the most beautiful ways it's used is to anoint all of the elements of the Old Testament. We'll say, we'll call it furniture. Um, Everything in the tabernacle was anointed with holy oil, and it had a very specific recipe of which a primary ingredient was myrrh, but it could not be used for any other purpose. It had to be only used for the tabernacle, and once everything in the tabernacle was anointed, so were the priests, and the priests were, we'll talk about that when we get to holy orders next week, but that oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Old Testament, and I remember when I was confirmed, and the the bishop or actually it was my priest traced that sign of the cross on my forehead I hadn't thought about the oil having a smell but it smelled glorious it smelled a little bit like grapes I thought but that's the sweet odor that the Old Testament gives to this anointing oil it was supposed to have a sweet fragrance or a sweet smell and that's because it's symbolic of those virtues the spiritual fragrance or that attractiveness that should characterize the life of those who are confirmed and those com- uh, confirmation recipients who put those graces to work and that cross on the forehead is traced um, as a really powerful symbol if you understand and act on what it's for basically we're saying we're allowing God to brand us and that is beautiful uh, in the uh, eighth chapter of the Song of Solomon we're going to do a series on Song of Solomon shortly I don't know uh, how far down the line but but soon but that's a beautiful Uh, symbolism in the Song of Solomon where we are branded with the brand of the the Holy Spirit there and it is a consummation it's presented in the context of a consummation a relationship that has has been consummated in the eighth chapter of Song of Solomon but it's it's that brand that visible mark on the soul the indelible mark that's obviously baptism but then uh, confirmation has its own special mark on the soul and it that's where that sign of the cross comes from So we're thinking then, we should be, am I really Christ's man or woman? In my daily life, am I bearing witness to Christ? In my attitude toward others, in my treatment of those around me, in my actions in general, am I proclaiming, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live the gospel. And that's what we're receiving when we receive the the sacrament of confirmation. We're receiving the graces and the virtues of the Holy Spirit in order to live that kind of life and it strengthens us it gives us that strengthening grace so that we can overcome our pettiness and our cowardice in the face of other people's opinions and their our fears of sacrifice so we are pledging our loyalty to Christ in confirmation and we're ready to suffer anything rather than betray him and so it's not a we're not merely passively suffering 
when we receive confirmation or at least uh, proclaiming that willingness to do so, it's inevitable in life. And so in confirmation, we're basically saying we're ready to suffer the self-sacrifice that's involved in giving ourselves fully to Jesus and his service. In a way, we could say that confirmation sort of corresponds to the Jewish bar mitzvah, because in the Latin church, we confirm children after they've reached the age of reason, while in the Eastern church, they do it at the time of their baptism. But adults who haven't ever been confirmed, whether they're converts or otherwise, they can be confirmed anytime, which is why my priest was going to allow me to come in at Christmas rather than wait for the Easter vigil. But it is customary for confirmations to occur at the Easter vigil. So to recap, confirmation as a Christian sacrament has its roots in the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And Pentecost means 50 in Greek, and so it got its name from the 50th day from that Feast of First Fruits. And that Pentecost feast, which is approaching now in the church, was the birthday of the church, the first fruits of the resurrection of souls after Christ in the new birth of baptism and confirmation. I want to just read that passage since I have the time. And it's coming up in the church liturgical year. In chapter 2 of Acts, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I love that passage for so many reasons, but I love the thought of the wind, the rushing wind. I love to imagine what that would have been like to hear that sound and to feel the rush of that wind on on me and the the tongues of fire, what that would have looked like. And I misspoke when I said that uh, Pentecost was after the first fruits. It was actually after Passover. And we talked about it being the Feast of Weeks. But during that celebration, the Jews brought to God, remember, the first fruits of their harvest from for Thanksgiving, expecting that God would give the rest of the harvest. And that's really what we're doing in confirmation is we're receiving the first fruits of those gifts of the Holy Spirit in anticipation that they will continue throughout our lives unto the full end of our salvation, which will be in heaven itself and all of our inheritance, all of our reward that we um, have merited in Christ while we've been here doing our suffering <laughs> in this valley of tears and our good works. So the characterization here in Acts, the the symbolism was the wind and the tongues of fire. So we see fire as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We also have the oil, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament. And remember that each of the sacraments is of itself a covenant. And so there's an exchange of commitment. The Holy Spirit gives himself to me. I give myself fully to the Holy Spirit, whether that involves a cross of suffering, which is definitely will, self-denial, and a submission of my will to God's will. And then there is an exchange of identity. I am no longer just Sonia. I have a new name. I have a new identity. I have a new authority and a new role as a witness in the church and for Christ. There's an exchange of resources. God gives me the Holy Spirit, the spiritual power and authority to conquer sin in myself and to conquer territory for the kingdom, for him. 
and our we have that special power and authority in that final sacrament of initiation we have the resources of heaven we have the saints of course we do we have that beginning the seed of it in baptism but we are fully initiated into that and all of those resources and that identity and that commitment in the sacrament of confirmation which is itself a covenant a self-donation we also have an exchange of enemies and we say that the confirmand says that in the actual um, sacrament we make that profession of faith in solidifying ourselves in to this uh, sacrament or this covenant with God there is an exchange of life there was a shedding of blood Christ gave his blood as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world I didn't mention this but in uh, the feast of first fruits the Part of the sacrifices that were made there, of course, the Passover was a Passover lamb, lamb, but even the first fruits of their flocks were given as part of that offering. So we have the principles there of tithing, your time and your talent, the first or the gross and the best. All of those principles are in the Old Testament. Then there's that exchange of a mark. In confirmation, we receive that mark of the Holy Spirit in that chrism, the oil and the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit which we uh, mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Then there is an exchange of a meal, and we receive then at that point the Eucharist. If we are a convert coming into the church for the first time, then we will receive it after confirmation. If we are children when we are confirmed, then it all kind of happens together. But notice then, again, that the sacrament of confirmation is itself a covenant. And a covenant, it can be violated, remember, but there are curses associated with the violation, but it cannot be broken. Once we are confirmed, we are always confirmed, and the, the graces of this, the sacraments of initiation make falling into, if we fall into serious sin, it makes the return to grace and return to communion in the church much easier, spiritually speaking, but also um, corporately speaking. So in confirmation, when we receive the Eucharist, actually both of those things, when we do either of those things, we re reaffirm and renew our covenant vow with Christ and his church. Remember that Jesus's body was marked when he was crucified. And so that is part of why and how we receive the character of the mark of baptism and confirmation carries its own uh, seal or brand. And so confirmation is necessary. Every, In fact, I, I learned in my study this week that confirmation, we're obligated to be confirmed if we are baptized and we are in the church. We're obligated. If we are able to receive it, we are obligated to do so. So it is important. Remember what Sister Lucia said about confirmation, the lack of confirmation being part of the reason that many fall will fall away during the end. And I think we're seeing that. So it's very important. If you haven't been confirmed, please make your appointment and go be confirmed and go out and live in that confirmation of your position and your authority and your power in Christ as one of his people marked and guarded and confirmed in the Holy Spirit through the passion, the death, and the resurrection of the first fruits of the resurrection, Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Until next week, I'm Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelista.
Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Evangelista show. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com.